All right, well, I don't know that I have anything to announce yet. So we are in Isaiah 64, pretty short chapter. Follows on the heels, um, not just um, chapter 63, but I think thematically and um, in prophetic history and the rest. So why don't we get into it? Why don't you stand, if you would? We'll read the Word of God. And we are so close to being done. Wow. All right. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter. And all we are, and all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Father, um, thank you for your word, Lord. Um, Lord, we thank you for the prophet Isaiah who so readily made himself available to you and in turn made himself available to the people of God that they might hear the word of God. And, and Lord, we realize that's the context tonight, the, the people of Israel and your interest in them and Lord, your eventual redemption of them. And I just pray you would teach us from the text, not just the prophetic history, uh, Lord, but the, the lessons that are true for us as well, all of your people. And so minister to our hearts, we pray. Lord, also pray that you would give um, Jeremy safe travels to Portland and, uh, and also for coming home with my son and my mom. Uh, just encourage them through their drive and in spite of the weather, help them to have good fellowship. But Lord, grant them safety, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. I'm envious that they have so much snow down there. We just got cold. <laughs> so actually, the, where we live, our ground is still frozen. And so all this rain is just, it's not going anywhere except running. And uh, so the ground is all hard. And uh, the water doesn't have any place to go except run around on the surface. So it's kind of interesting. All right, well, Isaiah 64. So chapter 63, uh, if you were here last week, uh, was an oracle of judgment. Uh, but it wasn't just 
uh, looking forward to the future. It was as if Isaiah was transported to the future and was actually engaging with the person of judgment. We know it was Christ who was returning from Basra after this, this bloody battle with the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. Chapter 64 is uh, a plea for God to judge her enemies and then to have pity on Israel. So in this oracle, uh, Isaiah, again, is, it's, is as if it's, he's projected into the future and he's there uh, and he's, he's witnessing, as it were, the kind of the state of Israel as it has come to be because of her sin and the consequences of it. He's there as a witness of the aftermath. And so he's going to talk about it and he's going to comment about it. But the whole thing is, is because of Israel's rebellion, she's been turned over to her enemies. She's been laid waste, uh, but not just her, but all her cities, Jerusalem, the place of worship. And uh, it says all the pleasant things of Israel have been burned up. So Israel, it, within its borders, is just it's a, a tragic um, desolation. And uh, so seeing all this in his vision, Isaiah then confesses the sins of Israel. And then I think carefully, because he knows the character of God, he begins to plead for Israel that God would extend his pity to them. So return, if you would, to verse 1 and 2. He says, oh, that you would rend the heaven. That's, that's that you would tear them open uh, like a garment. That you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations, that's the Gentiles, uh, may tremble at your presence. So because of what Isaiah has seen uh, regarding his people, the land, the cities, the temple, Jerusalem, he kind of comes out swinging when it comes to the judgment of God. He's saying, Lord, bring your wrath upon the nations, but not just judge them. He says, I, we, we want this grand display. We want you to rip apart the heavens. We want you to come down upon the earth, especially the mountains, and then to make the mountains tremble. Now, you know, in the scriptures, it's interesting. The mountains are always this image of what is firm, what is eternal, what is strong. And so God, for him to come and in his power, overpower the mountains. So he's asking for the grandest display of the mighty wrath and righteousness of God. It may be an allusion to kind of what's happening in Revelation 6, which portrays, you know, the coming of the Lord in judgment. And um, so Isaiah, he would have God consume the adversary as they have uh, consumed Israel. Yeah. And then he kind of looks back to another time uh, when God at least showed up, but not in his wrath. It says, when you did awesome things for which we, that's the people of Israel, did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. I assume that he's recalling, um, at least from what he knows from uh, the scriptures, is Revelation 19 and 20, when God descended upon the, uh, the, on Mount Sinai. You know, the people stood afar off, and uh, they trembled, they saw smoke and, and lightning, you know, they felt the mountain moving, uh, but they didn't look upon God, they didn't see his form. 
And so I think Isaiah is kind of saying, well, something like the awesomeness that happened there at Mount Sinai, but this time, completely come down with your wrath on the nations, on the Gentiles. Yeah, you remember the story from Exodus when uh, Moses came down from the mountain, the people said, look, you go up there and talk to him. What we just witnessed was, was too much. It was too terrifying. And uh, so uh, even though God had come to establish Israel to give them their law, even give them their culture and, and just make them, to create them, uh, they just almost wanted to have nothing to do with him because his presence was just too overwhelming. And so God is saying, or Isaiah rather is saying, actually overwhelm the enemy with your presence. Verse four and five, he says, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Now, that phrase is, by all other translations, essentially says that God meets with those who rejoice in righteousness, okay? Who remembers you in your ways, You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved, saved from themselves. So to begin with, you know, of course, there's no God but Jehovah or Yahweh. So if any man has experienced a God who acts in his favor, it's the Lord, because there's no other God that does that. Um, Any, um, you know, demon... Uh, Satan, they never act in in man's favor, right? There's always something hidden uh, to advance this this nefarious agenda. God is the only one uh, that acts in favor of man, right? It says here that he, he acts in favor for those who wait for him, those who rejoice in righteousness, and those who remember his ways. That is, they, they remember to walk uh, in his word. But... For those who know his ways, like Israel, and Israel was the only people group in the world that knew his ways, but refused to wait on him, you know, refused to walk in righteousness, to live according to his word, they become the object of God's anger, as the text is clarifying here. So here, Isaiah, at this point, uh, he begins to you know, confess the sinfulness, the rebellion of Israel, uh, acknowledging that their sin has put them in a place where they need saved. They, they need redeemed. And they're not going to do it themselves. They're not going to do it themselves. He says, but we are like, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> we are all alike, all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. How many of you guys know that passage? Yeah. Yeah, Isaiah 64, of course, is best known for this verse. Uh, it's often quoted in the context of evangelism, but I think Isaiah 64 itself is not well known. It's, it's amazing how we grasp onto a, a text but know nothing about the context, okay? So he says that Israel had become like an unclean thing, that is, like a filthy rag to her God. Now, uh, an object, a person, a garment, or a rag was rendered ceremonially unclean by what it touched or by what it was touched by. Okay? But a rag, for instance, was not considered unclean in this sense uh, if it was used to wipe up dirt. 
That's not what it's talking about here. Or if you had used it to wash your face. Um, that's, that's not what uh, the uncleanness here that's, that's being talked about. Those who were ceremonially unclean were forbidden to enter the temple. They weren't supposed to touch others, and others were to avoid touching them. Okay? The, the woman that you know, had been bleeding for years in the Gospels, she was unclean. And so it, it, her appearance in public, especially in a crowd where she was touching people and people were touching her, she was taking a great risk. Okay? She was unclean. A rag would be rendered unclean if it touched a dead body, for example, or got blood or bodily fluids on it. Isaiah is saying that because of Israel's sin, they've become like an unclean rag that has bodily fluids on it. He's saying they're contaminated by sin, which then has contaminated everything they do and everything that they say. Because the problem hasn't been taken care of within, he's saying every motive, every good deed, every, every word, even if it's kind and righteous, uh, it's defiled by sin. It's completely unclean, and it has a way of defiling everyone else that's around them. Okay? So even righteousness, he says, is considered unrighteousness because they're so defiled. So their worship, their works, their service, everything. Job makes this interesting statement in Job 14.4. He says that who can, bring an un, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And I think it was Ezekiel where the Lord is engaging, uh, or he's having Ezekiel ask the question to the elders of the people, that can, if, if, if a righteous person touches something that is unclean, does it make that thing clean? No. But if the unclean thing touches the righteous, they become unclean. And once it is unclean, it has to be ceremonially purified before it can be clean again. Okay? But Job says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? He says, no one. Yeah, And so this is why Isaiah says Israel must be saved. She's too far gone in her defilement. It requires divine intervention. Verse 7, he says, And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. So even you know, with all of God's chastisement up to this point, in the history of Israel, they're now failing to get the message, to repent and then seek his face, okay? You remember, uh, all through the Old Testament, that was God's MO, wasn't it? He would, he would, like throughout the book of Judges, he would let their enemies consume them. And then it was like Israel would wake up, they would repent, they would cry out to the Lord, they'd be restored. This happens over and over and over again throughout their history. But now Isaiah is saying that in this this thing that he's seeing in the future, Israel is not responding. They're not responding. God has chastised them over and over and over again. And that typical time of waking up and realizing their sinfulness, realizing they've been separated from God, it's not happening. So things are worse than ever as far as what Isaiah is talking about. Their enemies are no longer helping them to turn back to God. So God then He's withdrawn even further. His face is hidden from them, and he's just allowing them to endure the full consequences of their sin. Israel is in a scary spot in this oracle. So he says, but now, 
and begins to plead with God, Oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. So Isaiah, because remember he's looking forward to what's going to happen, he begins to plead with God in advance before Israel even comes to this place. Because at that time, remember, nobody's going to call out to God. So as a, as a faithful prophet, he begins to call out as an advocate in advance. Now, I think that's interesting. God is in eternity, so he can pray anytime, I guess, and, uh, and make his case uh, pleading for Israel. Maybe even after the fact you could do that. I don't know. I have a, a couple of friends, um, and I've read some theologians talk about it, that even after the fact in history, pray. <laughs> I go, okay. But here it's in advance, okay? So Isaiah, like all the prophets, he knew that for Israel and for the individual, there's, there's, there's no merit, there's no virtue, there's, there's no righteousness for Israel to offer God that he might work on their behalf. There's nothing good about them that would move God in their favor. There's nothing. There's nothing. They've become collectively, all together, like this unclean thing. All that they touch, all that touches them is defiled. So he pleads with God as their father, you know, the one who created the people of Israel. And, and he's looking back at, you know, the beginning of it all. You know, God had called Abraham out of Ur. He was separating him from the rest of mankind that he might establish a new people group, a people group that he would reveal himself to, that he would make promises to. Look back to the beginning. And then he humbly, cautiously, here he's kind of alluding to the covenant relationship with God, this relationship of creator, of father, hoping that God will show pity and then remember their iniquity no more. So they were indeed the work of his hands, you know, like a potter who, who fashions clay according to his will. You look back on the history of Israel, it's all the sovereignty of God woven in those stories. But by this time, they will be so far gone that if they're to be saved, God has to act even independent of them, in spite of them. Okay? He has to begin to refashion them from the ashes of their own making. So they're not capable of redeeming themselves. They had, at that time, they'll have no interest in seeking God or calling out to him. And so we might say the divine potter must bring the clay back to the wheel. He must begin to fashion them all over again. And I believe that Isaiah, I believe that he's confident that God would fulfill his promises, keep his covenants with their fathers, okay? that he would remain faithful. Because as you know, Isaiah is one of the most theological prophets in the Old Testament. He was, you know, so much was revealed about the character and the nature and the faithfulness of God. So he knew that God would be faithful to all of his promises and the covenant in spite of this rebellious people. He says, your cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. So, real quick, Isaiah died before the Babylonians came. None of this is true of Isaiah's day. All the cities were still standing. The temple was still standing. Jerusalem was fine. So, Clearly, he's looking forward, right? It's, it's prophetic. The, 
the, the prophetic present, if you will. He's seeing what will happen because of their sin. And then he says, will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Yeah. He's saying, will you do nothing, Lord? When you see this, this desolation, this devastation, the people, the land, and everything in it, will you do nothing? Will you say nothing? Will you just continue to allow us to be afflicted without relief? In other words, is this it, Lord? Are we left to this fate without any hope? Have you permanently, and he doesn't believe this, but have you completely permanently cast us off? He's, he's trying to touch the heart of God, isn't he? He's trying to get him to show pity. So I believe that he will, but at the same time, in his, his vision, he, things are so bleak. And in the vision, he's not seeing on the horizon, you know, this, this relief, okay? It's just broken his heart. It's made him desperate. And we see that in the way that he's crying out. Now, we know from Isaiah, we know from uh, Jeremiah, we know from Habakkuk and Zechariah, that the Lord will restore Israel, the remnant. And I'm excited for all of that. But what about us? Let's, let's try to gain some lessons from this prophecy. Okay. To a lesser de- degree, or perhaps in a, a different manner, we too can be chastened by the Lord for rebellion and unrepentant sin. I'm talking about believers. I'm not talking about unbelievers, but us receiving discipline from the Lord. It's, it's to the Lord's people. Uh, you remember Isaiah 59, 3 says, sin has separated you from your God. Speaking of fellowship, covenant blessing, and all of that. Sin has separated you. It hasn't ended the relationship, the covenant relationship. It's just separated. It's, it, it's put you off from enjoying fellowship and the blessings of God. It's for us, same for Israel. Remember, Israel had to abide by the covenant in order to enjoy the blessings of the land, right? If they didn't, they could be removed. The land still belonged to them, but because of their disobedience, they couldn't enjoy that. They wouldn't have the temple for worship. Fellowship was severed. That's what sin did. God does not hear us when we ignore unrepentant sin. You know, David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear me. That's discipline. Psalm 66, 18. One of my favorites is God ignores husbands when they dishonor their wives. 1 Peter 3, 7. Because if you want your prayers to be heard, honor your wives. It's a good word, right, wives? 1 Peter 3, 7. When we fail to examine our conduct in light of the Lord's sacrifice, Paul says we heap judgment on ourselves, 1 Corinthians 11, 28 through 29. God despises unbelief because it's an insult to his character. It's, it's the same as saying, God, you're not trustworthy, where God is completely trustworthy. Okay, he withholds his reward where there's no faith, Hebrews eleven six. He resists the proud, James 4, 6. I could go on, yeah? God does not subsidize unrepentant believers with an endless display of his grace. He doesn't do that. He desires truth in the inward parts, Psalm 51, 6. Now, we know God is gracious, okay? The fact that we still have life and breath after we sin, as Jonathan Edwards would say, that's sufficient evidence, yeah. But many people, you know, live in this state of entitlement with God, expecting him to just bless them no matter what. It's really strange, 
Okay? It just doesn't represent the relationship that God has with his people. At least not the God of the Bible. It's not anywhere close to what we see in Scripture. It's this bizarre wishful thinking. It's actually, I think, um, I'm no psychologist, but, or a sociologist, or whoever would determine these things, but it's rather a construct of Western Christianity where everyone gets a, a participation award no matter how poorly they perform. Well, I'm in, and so everything is going to be good. Well, that's not really Christianity. That's, you know, that's twisting the faith to our own destruction. We're saved by grace. There was no amount of good works or virtue that you know, we brought to him that might merit you know, or earn his salvation. And though he did not save us by our works or because of our works, he did save us for good works. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. Ephesians 2.10 says that he created us for good works, and he ordained that we would walk in them. So he saved us to sanctify us, to make us like himself, to be holy as he is holy. He told that to his old covenant people. He told that to his new covenant people. We are called to represent him in this world through righteousness and love. And so if we're not pursuing righteousness, if we're not walking in repentance, now, when I say walking in repentance, what I mean is this. You guys, including me, we sin daily, right? Everybody, please go like this. Okay. He who says he has no sin is a sinner. Yeah. But walking in repentance recognizes sin and then repents. And so we repent daily, often. So that's walking in repentance. That's being renewed to righteousness in this good standing and fellowship with, with God. And we should not expect to enjoy fellowship with him, we should not expect to enjoy his blessings unless we are walking in repentance and righteousness. We should be, if we're biblically minded, we should be looking forward to discipline. Like a child who, you know, I, I wasn't homeschooled, so my mom could get a call from the school, and she got a lot. What should I be looking forward to when I get home? Discipline. Yeah. Like some wooden spoons from time to time. We should be looking forward to his discipline. However it may come, the guilt of sin, guilt is miserable, amen? When the spirit just presses on your conscience, that's discipline. You know, and I often pray that when people are walking in unrepentance, I pray that God would make them miserable. I pray that they wouldn't sleep at night. I pray that they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't enjoy their food. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would make them miserable, until they wake up to their sin, they humble themselves and they repent. Okay? The, the, the misery of the consequences of sin, it, it, however it comes through his providence, it comes. Okay? We're, we're promised that God disciplines those that he loves. What does that imply? It also implies that he doesn't discipline those that he doesn't love. Now, in the sense of redemptive love, okay? you know, the history of Israel demonstrates that he disciplines those that he loves. Paul's thorn in his flesh proved it. Remember, to keep him from being puffed up beyond measure, God allowed Satan to buffet him, to keep his pride down a little bit. Okay? You know, God takes vengeance on his enemies, but he chastens his children like a good father, that they might repent and then profit by, as Hebrews says, by partaking of his holiness. 
that they might yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So restoring us to righteousness and fashioning us in his image is always his goal. And I would counsel you guys that when you're ministering to a brother or sister that's in sin, make sure that you cooperate with the providence of God in their life. Pray against their sin. Pray that they would be miserable in their sin. Sin destroys. Pray that their sin would wake them up and that they would be restored to God. The danger or the haunting thing about what Hebrews talks about is that if chastening is not happening in someone's life to some level, that person, as Hebrews says, may be an illegitimate child of God, meaning they were never saved. They, were, they never incorporated into the covenant with God. They were never adopted into the family of God through genuine faith and repentance. Okay, I believe that the redeemed of God can only enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season before the Holy Spirit deals with them as children. I believe that because the scriptures promise it. He chastened Israel okay, by her enemies, by famine, pestilence. He chastened Paul, other people. So if you're a wayward child, expect it. Okay? And understand it's the goodness of God. Expect it if you're in sin. And if you're not, then walk in the joy of the Spirit. Enjoy the, the, the covenant blessings that we have in the Lord. Walking in repentance, faith, and obedience. You know, I would say look no further than the sin in your life to diagnose the problem. Okay? A lot of people, they don't want to give up stuff. Okay? Sin. They don't want to repent but they hate the consequences of it. And so what they do is they try to shut their mind out to those things and they look for relief someplace else. But we've already diagnosed it. It's called sin. It's called ungodliness and unrighteousness. Repent and you'll enjoy relief. God is upon that person. If it's his child, he's going to make them miserable. And we should thank God for that kind of grace in our life. Don't you believe that? I mean, you believe that when you're training a child's character because they've went astray, you believe that training is good for them, right? Yeah. So when a good God disciplines his children, we should thank him for that goodness. So don't be mystified by discipline if you have unrepentant sin. Be reconciled to God, walk in faith, and by his grace, walk according to his word. Amen? The final danger in all of this is getting so far out there as Israel did, and then risking God turning his face away. You don't want to go there. Turning his face away is the ultimate discipline. It's time to turn back before then. So repent quickly. Amen? All right, I'm going to let you out early, and I'm going to catch up with my family. (laughs) Go ahead and stand up, and we'll pray. Maybe they'll just stay in Portland. Uh, Father, I think always it's easy to pick on Israel and to magnify their sin and the consequences they faced. Um... But sin is no different in our time. Your character, your, your love for us, your righteousness, your providence, it's, it hasn't changed at all. We live in a different covenant, but you still look at sin the same way. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the same perspective of sin, that we would despise it in our own lives, especially before we always are despising it in others, and that you would grant us grace to repent Lord, help us, I pray, early on um, to recognize your discipline in our lives. You grant us grace to quickly repent and be relieved of our own foolishness, our folly, Lord. And um, Lord, help us to just constantly walk closely with you in humility. 
And Lord, help us to come alongside brothers and sisters to rebuke them when necessary, to correct, to encourage, Lord, to counsel. Although we all might together seek your face with a pure heart, Lord. Lord, again, we pray that you would be with um, uh, the Corwins and my family, Lord. Uh, help them to make wise decisions tonight and to be safe. Yeah, Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.